Good afternoon. So glad you could join us today. My name is Karen Sampson Hoffman, and I'd like to welcome you to today's Ask the Expert, A Pattern of Struggles, ADHD, and the Older Adult. Today we welcome Martin Wetzel, author of the Adult ADHD Handbook for Patients, Parents, and Friends. The Ask the Expert webcast series is presented by the National Resource Center on ADHD, which gives the general public access to top clinicians, researchers, and other professionals. The National Resource Center is a partnership between CHAD and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and serves as the national clearinghouse for the latest evidence-based information on ADHD. A recording of today's broadcast will be available through the National Resource Center on ADHD's website, help4adhd.org, under the webcast archive at the bottom of the page in about two days. To view the recording sooner, please follow the same link you use today to view the recording. The recording will be available in about 30 minutes following our presentation. We may not be able to get to all of your questions today. If you would like to talk with a health information specialist for further information on today's topic, please contact us Monday through Friday from 1 to 5 p.m. at 1-800-233-4050 or online at www.help4adhd.org. Finally, following today's webcast, a brief survey will appear on your screen. Please take a couple of minutes to let us know what you think and how we can better serve the ADHD community through the Ask the Expert webcast series. It is a privilege to introduce today's guest expert, Dr. Martin Wetzel. Dr. Wetzel is a board-certified psychiatrist and an adjunct clinical professor at the University of Nebraska Medical Center in Omaha. He has published several studies on ADHD in senior adults. His book, The Adult ADHD Handbook for Patients, Family, and Friends, is a popular reference for adults and treatment professionals. Dr. Wetzel is currently the psychiatrist for the Mental Health Unit at the Nebraska Department of Correctional Services, where he is a clinical instructor for psychiatric residents, medical students, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners. For those of you who would like to ask Dr. Wetzel a question following his presentation, written questions can be submitted in the questions box on your GoToWebcast toolbar, as indicated by the red arrow in this slide. All questions are moderated, and we will get to as many as possible during the Q&A portion of the webcast. Again, we are very pleased to welcome today's expert, Dr. Wetzel, if you would like to begin. Thank you very much. Um, first of all, I'd like to welcome everyone to the webcast. This is a unique opportunity, and I really look forward to presenting today. Uh, first of all, I wanted to uh, Make sure that everyone's aware that at this time I have no competing interest to report in giving this presentation. And that some medications may be discussed during this presentation or the discussion that may not be FDA approved for the conditions that are being presented today. ADHD and the older adult, I say the time has come because this is the last age group to really be examined in the literature in terms of ADHD issues. And just as time and taxes come to everyone, uh, we all age at some point. This happens to be my card from the AARP that I received recently. Uh, my interest in this particular topic was born out of my work working with adults with ADHD and, of course, uh, 
some of my own patients aging into adult, older adulthood and getting adults coming in for the first time uh, over the age of 50 and, and older, some in their 70s for the first time and being diagnosed for the first time with ADHD. This led me to ask, well, uh, what's the literature look like in terms of providing services for this group? And what I found was that there was no literature. Uh, that led me to publish a paper in 2008, which was one of the first three papers ever published about ADHD and older adulthood. We've since had some in increasing literature provided for us, and it's given us some guidance, and that's what I'm going to be presenting today, that ADHD in older adults is an important diagnosis, that it is prevalent, we know that it exists, that we know that it has an impact on older adults, and I would argue it also is an important issue in public health. So let's go to some definitions. For a definition of ADHD, I would strongly encourage you to go to the CHAD website or the Help for ADHD website. Uh, you can get plenty of information about the diagnosis. Um, in a nutshell, I would say that ADHD as I see it is a disorder that's characterized by a difficulty with attentional stamina. In other words, people have a difficult time uh, maintaining stamina in situations that otherwise they should be able to, such as listening to a lecture or doing a task or remembering where they put their keys. And I will just tell you that, in my experience, ADHD presents in this format more similar than it does different with older adults or young children. Of course, young children are going to have different tasks and different priorities uh, than someone who's in their 70s, but nonetheless, the core issues remain the same. As far as defining what an older adult is, for the purposes of most studies in the literature, this is 50 years and older. Of course, for most of us, anyone older than us is considered an older adult. Um, it's interesting, in France, uh, they seem to think that anyone 45 and older is an older adult. I'm not sure why. In one study, the authors speculated 60 and older, but again, this tells us that we don't really have a standard demographic for what an older adult might be. This is compared to, say, children, where we generally say adolescence is the onset of puberty. We don't have a similar marker. Although, if uh, we look at the literature, it's often where we first begin to see problems with cognitive issues uh, that begin at age 50, whether that's due to early onset dementia or strokes or other sorts of problems. So 50 years and older tends to be the common denominator. And that's for the purposes of this lecture, that's what I will be uh, referring to. First, we're going to talk about what's been happening here recently. And I'm going to review some of the positives in the areas of this study. And then I'm going to review some areas of definite need. So. Uh, more patients are reaching older adulthood. So right now we have about 11,000 adults every day that are becoming eligible for Medicare and entering into retirement age. And this is, of course, the baby boomers moving uh, this large volume of people into this particular age group. 
We know that there are more studies being published on ADHD in older adults, and we're going to review that literature today. And we know that more patients are seeking evaluation for difficulties with thinking. Not only um, we have more numbers in terms of the baby boomers and sheer volume, but I think more people in general are much more sensitive to issues about their thinking and memory and are more apt to seek help than they were before. What's not happening is that there are very few studies in the United States on this topic. Most of them have been uh, performed in Europe. There's very few studies looking at medication and the treatment of older adults with ADHD. And finally, uh, medical education systems do a very poor job of teaching about this disorder. So first, what's happening? We have more studies published. As I mentioned before, uh, before 2008, there was really nothing in the literature about this topic. And then we had three published studies. One was a review uh, that I wrote, a case study that was published about treating one patient with a stimulant and how that was successful. And then a prevalence study in Europe looking at a general health survey and showing that indeed there were a significant number of people who had ADHD who were 50 years and older. Since then, we've had some several, uh, several excellent epidemiology studies of the prevalence of ADHD in older adults, and all of these have been done in Europe. And several studies have also looked at the effects of ADHD on the lives of older adults. Um, looks like we may have skipped a slide here. Yes. Um, the prevalence of adult ADHD in older adults is about 3%. This is slightly lower than younger adults. Uh, it's estimated to be about 4% at this age group. One can speculate why this is, but my own guess is it actually has to do with mortality. We know that most adults with ADHD are not aware that they have ADHD, so we have a very large number of people with this disorder uh, who are not treated. And just for one example, uh, I think this is how this touches on the public health issue. One study speculated that if all adult males were treated for ADHD who have ADHD, we could cut the number of fatal motor vehicle accidents in half. And I would speculate that includes, we could include other accidents, we could include uh, things like controlling obesity. We know that there's association between obesity and ADHD. So this is uh, one reason that we may see a slightly lower percentage in older adults than in younger adults. And we know that ADHD definitely does negatively affect the quality of life for older adults, but perhaps less so than younger adults, or at least in different ways. The studies thus far seem to indicate that ADHD seems to have more of an emotional impact on people and a relationship impact than it does on the economic or educational issues that we more often see with younger adults. We have limited studies on the effects of medication with older adults and ADHD. Based on my clinical experience, older adults seem to respond very well to these medications, and the positive effects from the medication seems to last over time, uh, years. And 
Limited data suggests that these medications are safe to use in older adults. We have some literature from, for instance, uh, treating depression with stimulants that indicates that they're relatively safe in older patients. I certainly saw no adverse effects beyond what you would normally see in a patient at any age with using a stimulant. And I thought older patients actually had much better health once their ADHD was taken care of because they were able to follow through with uh, their medical providers and with their treatment plans. So I felt they were much healthier and much happier once their ADHD was treated. What's not happening is that these studies for medications are very few. Uh, here are two that I'm aware of. One was a very limited uh, publication of 11 adults, 55 and older, with ADHD who were prescribed stimulants. And the findings were just what we would expect based on our clinical experience was what the adults seemed to do quite well with the medication. Another larger study with 149 adults was done in Norway, and this looked at their experience with stimulants. And what they found was that Older patients in general tend to be diagnosed later in life, in their 40s and 50s. In general, they thought their medication was very helpful. And interestingly, they were much more likely to stay on their ADHD medication compared to studies looking at younger adults and looking at adolescents. What else is not happening in this area is that there's very few studies of ADHD in older adults in the United States. Many more studies come from Europe, especially Norway and Sweden. I'm not exactly sure why this is, but the cynic in me su suspects that it has to do with economic incentives. Even though in the U.S. there's a growing market for treating all adults for ADHD, older adulthood is not seen as a distinct market, and therefore the uh, companies who are sponsoring medication research really have a uh, would be at a, uh, a disincentive to study older adults with health issues compared to looking at younger, healthy adults um, who are less likely to have problems with their medication. At this point, except for some um, side notes, uh, the DEA does not distinguish older adults from adults when approving a medication uh, for uh, diagnoses such as ADHD. Europe may well also recognize that ADHD is a public health problem. And by identifying it and treating it, uh, they would have some incentive to reduce costs to the entire healthcare system uh, by making sure that this is addressed. Finally, our medical education about ADHD and in outpatient psychiatry remains inadequate. So training on ADHD, if it exists at all, is limited in medical schools and in residency programs, and unfortunately, this also includes psychiatry programs. Consequently, clinicians and researchers have a blind spot when it comes to ADHD. That may sound surprising, but uh, it's sort of a vicious cycle. Medical school has poor training because many of the professors are unaware of this diagnosis. It's relatively new when it comes to adulthood. This follows through with residency, and then we know that ADHD is a silent disorder. It doesn't come on like the flu, or it doesn't come on like an episode of major depression. 
it's already on when people are born. So it's no surprise that less than 20% of adults are ever diagnosed. As medical professionals, we have to ask about this disorder, and the data is pretty clear that we're not asking about it, even when our patients may bring it up. This also includes uh, research centers and studies on cognitive issues such as early dementia or early cognitive impairment do not screen for ADHD. So when we look at the results from the studies, we don't know if some of the subjects they included may or may not have had ADHD. In speaking about dementia, I want to touch a little bit about any association or lack of association. Here, our data is limited, but there's both good news and possibly some bad news. Uh, the question, is my forgetfulness dementia, is going to be asked more and more by folks as they reach this age. Many of them will not have dementia, but we know many of them will have ADHD. So let's review what we think we know so far based on the literature. The good news is that there's no evidence to link ADHD and Alzheimer's dementia. Um, in other words, people with ADHD do not seem to be at an increased risk for getting Alzheimer's. Uh, these are limited studies, but so far there's been no evidence to link ADHD with this disorder. If you have ADHD, you're not likely to develop Alzheimer's dementia. The bad news is that there was one small study that found a possible association between ADHD and the development of a rarer form of dementia called Lewy body dementia. Again, this was very small, only 20 patients. I mention it only because the association was quite high, and this is something that we're going to be wanting to watch very closely going forward and see if there really is an association. Important to remember, though, that Lewy body dementia is a relatively rare form of dementia, and ADHD is relatively common. The really bad news, I think, is something that we can do something about, and that is the poor understanding of ADHD in the healthcare system. I think it leads to poor care of older adults seeking evaluation of cognitive issues. So we know that studies of dementia do not screen for ADHD. We know that memory clinics very rarely will screen for ADHD when looking at someone for uh, an evaluation, and that the clinicians most likely to first see older adults who have these concerns, such as internal medicine, physicians, family practice, psychiatrists, often do not screen for ADHD. So what we have is more and more people becoming concerned about their cognition and a gap in our education system in medicine about how to screen and diagnose this. So uh, it's really important, and, and one of just another small example would be the psychological testing that's often done for memory concerns. We know that if you have ADHD, your tests are going to be different than uh, someone who has uh, who does not have ADHD, and those those uh, problems with that testing may be interpreted as memory loss issues instead of being attributable to the ADHD. So that's just one example. So what do we need to do? Um, 
I think what we need to do and what we can do is improve medical education about ADHD at all stages of life and that it should be included in training programs for physicians, for nurses, nurse practitioners, physicians assistants, um, Research studies on related topics like memory and aging need to consider that some of the subjects enrolled may have ADHD. And even though we're talking about ADHD in older adults, this poor understanding penetrates medical education and clinical practice from pediatrics to geriatrics. So at all levels, uh, we need to be doing a better job. I also believe this is a public health concern. The more adults identified and treated for ADHD, in my opinion, will result in both better health for patients and lower overall costs for the healthcare system. What's needed is advocacy. First, we need advocacy from healthcare providers that we need better training on ADHD, and we need to be asking more from our medical schools, our nursing schools, PA schools, and faculty. We also need advocacy from patients with ADHD and their loved ones. So if you're uh, thinking you might have a problem with memory or someone you care about uh, maybe wanting to get an assessment, it's really important that we ask if that healthcare provider understands ADHD. And if not, try and find someone who does. Uh, and support organizations such as CHAD are tremendously important in continuing the effort to advocate for educating providers and consumers about ADHD at all levels. In conclusion, what we've gone over today is that ADHD is a relative common condition found in older adults, and we know that it has negative consequences. And although studies are limited, ADHD in older adults responds well to the same treatment as younger patients, and it's safe. And we all need to advocate for better training of healthcare tr training of healthcare providers to diagnose and manage ADHD at every point in life. My own experience with treating ADHD has been one of the most rewarding in my career, and I think other healthcare providers are also missing out on this very rewarding experience. By improving awareness, everybody benefits, providers, patients, and the general community. With that, I'm going to turn the uh, presentation over to the moderator. All right. Well, wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Wetzel. I think this has been a lot of good information. And we have questions that are coming in. You can submit your questions now if you haven't already in the box on your screen, uh, your question box that we showed you earlier. And our first question comes from Elvin, and he is very interested in the research you were talking about, and he was wondering where can he find the research on ADHD in uh, senior adults? Where, where should he look? Are there any specific journals or any specific type of library he should check out? I would uh, definitely suggest going to a reference librarian at a local library, and if you have a medical school uh, nearby, that would be even better. The, unfortunately, there is no one consolidated journal or place. The information that I presented today comes from multiple sources, and some of it even comes from teasing out the data from even larger studies. So it, it is an issue. We do need a single source, I think. And as I said before, I think the time has come and is coming 
where we're going to start looking at ADHD in older adults as a distinct entity. But for right now, I would suggest if there's specific topics that you're interested in to uh, go to your local library, ask to speak to the reference librarian, have a, a list of the questions you want to know, and they can get you some of the information. Some of these are uh, from journals that uh, you have to pay for online, but um, again, if you get them through your local library, you might be able to do that with limited cost or no cost. Wonderful, thank you. One of our uh, participants is wondering if there's a way to know if an ADHD diagnosis is accurate, especially if the person who's been diagnosed doesn't seem to be responding to treatment, and in treatment our uh, participant is referring to medication specifically. So as I understand the question, uh, when do we rethink a possible diagnosis of ADHD? Well, this is true in medicine of really any medical condition. A patient may come in with high blood pressure, and it seems pretty clear to us that their numbers are high and that they have high blood pressure, and we start treating them for hypertension, and it's not responding, and it's not responding, and then we do a little further investigating, and we find out maybe there was a secondary cause for their elevated blood pressure. ADHD can be very similar. There can be other psychiatric problems, uh, such as depression or anxiety, that can interfere with concentration or focus, or it can make the ADHD worse. Medications can affect these things. Um, if someone is abusing substances and hasn't been honest about it, that definitely can be causing problems. Sleep disturbances can be a major factor as well. I would say the most important thing is that the healthcare provider who's in charge of developing the treatment plan with the patient needs to work with the patient and the person accompanying that patient in making that decision at some point if things aren't getting better to relook at the diagnosis and maybe a referral to a specialist may be in order, but uh, any healthcare provider who's providing care for ADHD should have a good understanding of these other conditions that may also contribute to problems with focus and concentration and attention. Well, Inez wants to follow up that question. Um, you were mentioning it earlier about medications and uh, their use as part of the treatment for ADHD for senior adults. She was wondering how effective are the medications for treating adult ADHD? That's a very good question. I will tell you that uh, from my personal experience and generally from the literature, if you look at uh, drug studies and from what other clinicians will tell you, that in the patient who's been accurately diagnosed and uh, treated with a level of skill that someone develops by working with adults over time, that I would say 60 to 80 percent of adults will notice some significant improvement, and improvement to the point where they believe that it's worthwhile to continue the treatment plan, to keep coming in for office visits, to keep getting their medication refilled. All the hassles that come with getting a prescription, uh, 60, and 60 to 80, 70 percent, somewhere in there, of adults will 
have a good response to medication such that uh, both they and their provider agree that they're having a good response, that it's clinically effective, and that they want to stay on their medication. Great. Well, thank you. Um, to follow the medication question, we have a question from Leon, and he was wondering about coaches and therapists and how useful they are for the adult who has ADHD as part of the behavior management uh, component of treatment. That's an excellent question. We know from looking at uh, all ages of ADHD that have been studied up to this point that most patients will benefit from some additional help. Um, as a lot of my fellow ADHD providers will say, pills don't always provide skills. And I say don't always because I've had many patients, once they were able to get on medication, they were able to read for the first time. They were able to pick up a book like uh, Driven to Distraction or um, other ADHD self-help books and really kind of coach themselves. But before they were able to focus and concentrate long enough to read, this was a very difficult exercise. Some patients will benefit from, say, an ADHD coach. And I think it is going to vary a lot from person to person. Depends on their personality style, depends on their interest level and their motivation. But I think knowing that you have this diagnosis is the most powerful part of the treatment. Because once you know you have it and you're fairly confident you have it, then you and your provider can map out a treatment plan that's individualized, that works for you, and you can move forward. That treatment plan may be learning about ADHD and some ways to manage it. Uh, some of it may include medication. Uh, oftentimes, it's a combination of medication and some additional uh, sorts of behavioral or uh, cognitive therapies. But knowledge is power in this particular instance. I think it's also really helpful knowing you have this diagnosis when it comes to relationships because now we have something to work with when we're having conflict around issues with ADHD. And before, we may have called it something else. We may have called it being lazy or we may have called it being uh, purposely forgetful. But now we have something that we may be able to label it that actually is helpful for us. So it's not an excuse, but very often it's a very accurate explanation. So for example, if someone says uh, that they forgot something at the store, rather than getting in an argument about forgetting something and what that implied to the other person or the relationship, we can say, well, possibly this was due to the ADHD. So next time, we'll make sure and take a list. In other words, I think this really opens up problem solving in relationships when it comes to ADHD as opposed to blaming and frustration and anger. Well, thank you. Um, we have two, two of our participants who are wondering about spec scans as part of an evaluation. And perhaps maybe you could mention very briefly what a senior adult would expect during an evaluation for ADHD and would a spec scan be part of that? 
So a good evaluation for ADHD should begin with a comprehensive assessment. And by that, I mean uh, there should be some uh, paper and pencil testing a little bit for screening purposes. There should be anywhere from, I would say, 45 to 50 minutes, maybe longer, of sit-down interview time. And during this time, uh, the examiner should be asking about ADHD in terms of history and current symptoms and signs of ADHD. But there should also be a comprehensive assessment for other psychiatric disorders because we know that ADHD and other psychiatric disorders are extremely common. In fact, some studies would indicate it's very rare to just have ADHD. It's very common to have other diagnoses such as anxiety, mild depression, certainly substance use issues are associated with ADHD. So we can't sit down and just say, um, I think you have ADHD, yes, you meet this checklist, now let's talk about treatment. We need to rule in or rule out other possible problems that we might be dealing with in terms of anxiety, depression, and so forth. That's what I mean by the comprehensive part of the mental health evaluation. We also need a medical evaluation, which includes past medical history, current medications, uh, any history of head injury. Uh, we need to look at family history. And this is particularly important with ADHD because increasing evidence shows that it's very genetic. And so we need to look through the family history and see if we can find other relatives that may or may not had, have had ADHD. This is not a requirement to get the diagnosis, but it's very, very common to find other relatives that may have been diagnosed or certainly uh, at, on the surface level may have appeared to have problems consistent with ADHD. And finally, it's really important to look at where that patient is in terms of their life. Um, certain situations are going to bring out different feelings, different abilities to function, and so I think it's also important that when you get an assessment that the person who's talking to you has an understanding of where you came from and where you are now. What kind of person are you? Because that's going to have a bearing not only on your diagnosis, but also on how we put together a treatment plan if that's what we're wanting to go forward on. In terms of the SPEC scan, um, those are not considered a standard part of ADHD assessments at this time. Um, and I think we're, you can find some providers who would say that they're extremely helpful. Um, but again, in terms of what you would consider sort of a standard right now, a SPEC scan is really not considered a standard when it comes to a comprehensive assessment for ADHD. Not to say that in the future, with more studies, more understanding, we may include this as part of an evaluation, but for right now, uh, it remains sort of outside the standards when it comes to establishing a psychiatric or a mental health diagnosis. 
Well, thank you. I think that was very helpful for a lot of our participants who are wondering what they should expect. Uh, we have some people who are asking about the medications for ADHD and other health problems. And uh, several of our participants have said that they've run into to physicians who are reluctant to prescribe stimulant medications for senior adults in general. And then we also have a question from Christina, who was wondering um, what to do when a, a doctor is, again, reluctant because of other health conditions, such as heart disease and the concern about stimulant medications. Is there any research? How can a patient or how can a doctor go about this? Again, an excellent question. And of course, it was one of the original questions I had in pursuing this particular topic. What does the literature have to say about this? And the answer is very little. And so it's perfectly understandable when we don't have data saying that this is safe for practitioners to say, well, if I don't have data saying it's safe, then I'm not going to take the risk that it might be dangerous, and so I'm not going to prescribe the medication. I think in this particular case, this is where we need to have a conversation with the patient about the relative known risks of these medications and the potential benefits for that patient. And the provider and the patient can kind of come together with a mutual decision. For many, many of my older patients, their decision was to give the medication a try. And as I said before, uh, I did not see any evidence of any significant problems beyond the sort of issues that you see with anyone at any age with a stimulant. You are going to have a much more difficult time, however, finding a provider who has any idea what ADHD is or has any idea about stimulants in general. Um, I remember the first time I considered prescribing a stimulant was for a patient with severe depression in, who was in the hospital. And I'd never prescribed one before. So I looked through uh, the literature. It was very limited. And we tend to be conservative in medicine. And I think that's a good thing. However, if that conservative uh, level of care is denying people access to something that they think might be beneficial for them, and the relative risks are understood by both parties, I'm not so sure that sometimes we may be causing more problems than we're, uh, than we're uh, trying to prevent. Um, but again, most providers, um, do not have a good understanding about this diagnosis and do not have a good understanding of the medication. So it's no surprise. Um, and my advice is, uh, as you might guess, to do some research and try and find a provider, not necessarily someone who's going to prescribe you medicine, but trying to find a provider who understands ADHD. Um, they may or may not decide to prescribe medication, but I think your odds are much better of having a good, balanced conversation about the relative risks and benefits with that provider than you will with someone who may just have a passing understanding of the disorder and the treatments for it. 
Well, thank you. Uh, Christina, though, has a follow-up question, too. And she was wondering, once a plan has been settled on, once medication has been prescribed, how long can a person expect treatment to take or to continue, especially when someone is at this age? As with any treatment plan, it's going to be very individualized. So uh, the fun part, for me at least, with treating ADHD as opposed to a lot of other mental health issues that we, do, we treat is that the effects are pretty much immediate for most patients. Uh, once we get to an adequate dose of medication, most patients can tell you, yes, I, I can tell a difference and I can tell when the medication wears off. And then it's a matter of titrating and adjusting the dosages so that the patient's getting the maximum amount of effect and no side effects. And the length of time that a patient is going to be in treatment is going to be an ongoing discussion with their provider, just like there's going to be an ongoing discussion about the relative risks or benefits of taking the medication. There's going to be a discussion about the relative risks and benefits of stopping a medication. So. Um, those discussions may have to do with a lot of times patients want to see how they can do off of their medicine for a period of time. And I always feel like uh, these are the kind of discussions that are really important because uh, you need to feel as though you and your provider are collaborating on your treatment plan and that the provider understands what you're saying and that you understand what the provider's saying so that you can come to these decisions in a mutual way. And that will include whether to start medication, uh, whether to continue the medication, and if at some point a trial off of medication. The thing about stimulants in particular, though, is that if you don't take them, uh, they're out of your system very, very quickly, uh, with a f only a few exceptions. Most of these um, are going to be out of your bloodstream completely by the next day. So many patients will have come in to me after not taking their medication for a weekend or a week or so, running out of their prescriptions or going on vacation, and say, I could really tell a big difference. Or sometimes saying, you know, I think maybe I want to take some time off the medication. But the main thing is communication, that there's a good line of communication between the provider and the patient to make these decisions. Thank you. Well, we've got uh, one of our audience members, she was wondering about emotional outbursts as a symptom of adult ADHD, and what are some of the symptoms that might be unique to this stage of life when we're talking ADHD? Could they include anger or outbursts or frustration or depression? What, what should a person be looking for? I can tell you from a clinical standpoint, from what I've observed, uh, if a person had emotional issues associated with their ADHD as a young adult, they're probably going to have them as an older adult as well. So I would be really suspicious of an older adult with ADHD who's having anger outbursts or emotionality um, that they didn't have before. I would be thinking about other potential causes or possibly a reaction to medication. Anytime we have something new with someone and we're in the ADHD arena, 
we start thinking of other things because, as I mentioned earlier, ADHD doesn't come on and at some point in your life just happen. ADHD is something that you bring with you into life. So uh, sometimes a situation can change. For example, uh, I had several patients come to see me when they moved from a job that was very active and physical and hands-on, and they could move from project to project, and then they were placed in a situation where they had to sit and focus for long periods of time. And they could get extremely frustrated and extremely discouraged in those situations. And that was sort of an adjustment reaction, if you will. But if it's something that's pretty extreme in terms of uh, emotions, I, if it's not been seen before, I would want to be digging deeper into the history and see if there's something else going on emotionally, psychiatrically, um, medically, that may be triggering that if it's a new development. Well, thank you. And those, that's very good to keep in mind. We have a question now from Mary. And she, mentioned, she said that you mentioned the book Driven, by, Driven to Distraction, which is a very popular book. And she was wondering if you had any other book suggestions or resource suggestions on a, uh, senior and adult ADHD that she could look up. For that, I would send you to Chad. Um, they have a great uh, selection. Um, and uh, these days, uh, we have the market to help us as well. So if you go on Amazon and you look at reviews, uh, again, I think it, it's a personal thing. Um, I saw one uh, book that was kind of in cartoon form, which I thought was uh, kind of interesting. Um, so there's all different types. And I think a person should look for something that's going to be a good fit for them, that's been reviewed by other people that, where they say, yeah, this, this seemed to work well for me. Of course, I'm going to promote my own book, but my own book isn't going to be for everybody either. Um, it's uh, relatively short, and I've had people say, well, I wanted more in-depth, but I kept it short for a reason. Um, and it depends on what you want. If you want an, an overview of the disorder, you're going to be looking for a different book than if you want a very in-depth scientific analysis. So it tends to run the gamut. But I would go to Chad's website. I would go to uh, Help for ADHD. Um, I would go to Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble, uh, all the online places. Look at the reviews and see if there's something that, that's going to be a good fit for you. And I, I think that's the great thing about the Internet now is we can have lots of people chime in in the marketplace and say, this was a great fit for me or this was not a great fit for me. And I think that's going to give you the best odds of finding a, a reference that's helpful for you. Thank you. And those are very good resources. As uh, Dr. Watzel just mentioned, we have books listed on the National Resource Center's webpage. And if you were to go over to help4adhd.org, look underneath our Living with ADHD tab, and we have a listing of staff favorites for you called Books for Adults. So those, that is a great place for you to go look and check out. Our next question is coming from Jim, and he was wondering if there is a limit or a threshold for stimulant medications for adults. What is the upper amount that 
should be prescribed or should be consumed? Excellent question. And there's two parts to the answer. The first part is the DEA limits. And it's important to understand why those limits exist. When a drug company is submitting a drug for approval, they choose the levels that they're going to test the drug. So uh, by and large, if you're a pharmaceutical company, you want to submit uh, the millions of dollars it's going to take to do your study. You're going to submit levels of medication that you hope are going to help the most folks with the least amount of side effects. So trying to, to balance that when you submit for your review. And then if your drug is approved by the DEA, and this doesn't matter whether it's an antibiotic or a stimulant, the literature will say this is approved up to this uh, particular dosage. Clinically, clinicians are not bound by those rules. We can prescribe dosages above or below recommended doses. And I've seen both cases. I've seen patients that do fine on very, very low doses of medication, other patients that need higher doses. And this is where the communication is so important with your provider because uh, some patients will need higher dosages, but your provider is going to want to have a good relationship with you because these are a controlled substance. So it's one thing to walk in to a provider's office and say, I need X amount of stimulant, uh, and I know it's four times as much as you normally prescribe, but that's what I need. And that may be what you need, and that's what you were getting from your prior provider, but what we need to do is have a good assessment. We need to have a good conversation about where you are with your medication, get records, et cetera. So because these are controlled substances very often, not all of them, but uh, most of them are, and because of the uh, stigma associated with them, both outside and within the medical community, and because of the, uh, the nature of these medications, it's important that we have a good provider-patient relationship, and that's where the individualized treatment plan can come into place. So um, everybody's different, and if you think about it, uh, just in terms of medication, some people can drink a lot of coffee and fall right asleep, and some people, one cup of coffee keeps them up for a day. And people vary in how they metabolize all kinds of chemicals. So that's the way we have to approach it. It has to be individualized. And someone may need just a little bit of medicine. Most people are going to need an average amount of medicine. And some people are going to need higher amounts of medication. And that's why it's so important to keep that treatment plan an active participating relationship. Well, thank you. And when we're talking about treatment plans and, and personalizing it, we have um, one of our participants was wondering about ADHD during menopause and how uh, the chemical changes during menopause can affect symptoms and how symptoms could affect the stage of life. That's an interesting question and one that uh, we don't have a lot of data about. Uh, I can tell you clinically, lots of uh, women will tell you that when they're approaching menopause or as they're going through menopause, 
they'll feel like they're not nearly as sharp. And there's a reason for that to be happening because we have fluctuating hormone levels. As the ovaries are moving into the mature stage where they're no longer producing hormones at the level they were before, hormones can definitely affect focus, concentration, and emotions. So if you have ADHD and now you're superimposing hormone fluctuations on that state, it can be rather confusing and rather frustrating. But again, this is where it's important to understand what's happening physiologically, understand that it's temporary, and that uh, working together with the provider, working together with uh, another provider probably who can manage hormone issues with the patient can be very helpful. So uh, this is true not only for menopause, this is true when people have other medical conditions, and I think it's true also with normal aging. I, I saw this in a number of patients where their ADHD was much more manageable in their 40s, but with normal aging, they seem to be having more difficulty, and sometimes their treatment plans needed to be adjusted accordingly. So uh, it's, it's interesting. Uh, we see it clinically. We do need to get some more studies on the effects of aging with ADHD in older adults. Well, thank you. And one of the things that I think you may say we need to do more, have more clinical experience, we have a question now about the experience of adjusting medication, either increasing or decreasing it, both at this time and then also for men and women throughout the course of treatment, especially when we're looking at uh, co-occurring health conditions. I like to think of uh, medication assessments and adjustments very similar to glasses. I've probably had a dozen or more adjustments in the lenses in my glasses. Uh, now I'm in the bifocal age. So uh, physiologic changes happen to all parts of our body, and there's no reason to believe that it's any different for our brains. So a dose of medication that was very effective when you were eight years old may be very different in terms of uh, the effect when you're 58 years old, and maybe not even the same medication. Again, we don't know a lot about the biologic changes with the brain and ADHD, but we do have evidence from lots of other organ systems in the body, cardiovascular, ophthalmology, that things change. So that's why the ongoing relationship is so important. and the awareness. So one of the things that we talk a lot about with patients with ADHD is developing an acute awareness of where you are in terms of your focus and concentration, what works for you, what doesn't. And then you're going to be much better at being able to communicate the need for a possible change with your provider. Well, we are, we've come to our last question, and I think it's a rather important one and a good one for us to end on. But uh, several of our participants have been wondering, how can you find a healthcare provider who specializes in senior, older, adult ADHD, someone who can help them with first the evaluation and the diagnosis and then setting up the treatment? Uh, it seems very often that we can find those for children, but where do we find one for the other stage? the other end of the stage? Unfortunately, it's a kind of a small group. 
this gets uh, back to my concern about training and education. Uh, the better job that we do training general medical providers and general psychiatry providers, the more people we're going to have who understand the diagnosis. And I tell people I specialize in adult ADHD, but really that's not an accurate statement. Um, what's more accurate is that um, I include ADHD as being a psychiatrist, and I think all psychiatrists should. I don't think this is particularly difficult to learn. I think once you learn it, it's relatively easy to incorporate into a general practice. That being said, um, for a lot of patients, uh, Chad has uh, providers who are registered providers, and so you can go to uh, their website. I think a big uh, help is uh, local medical centers. So. If your state has a medical school, calling them and asking, uh, particularly in the Department of Psychiatry, if they're aware of any uh, providers in the region who may specialize in this uh, particular area, uh, or calling a, a larger psychiatry group, for instance, where there's a number of providers and asking if they have a specialist there or if they know of anyone else in the community. It's oftentimes by word of mouth that you're going to find uh, the best reference. All right, well, thank you. And for the, the, pardon me, for those who are wondering where to find the listing that Dr. Wetzel just mentioned, that is on the CHAD website underneath resources, and you would want to put in your state, and that'll show you the listing of professionals who've made themselves known to us. Well, for our audience, we hope you've enjoyed this session. This has been great to have you today, Dr. Wetzel. We do have our brief survey that will come up at the end of our session. We hope that you will take a moment to complete that survey so that we can better serve the ADHD community. And on March 25th, we are welcoming Dr. George DePaul to talk about ADHD in preschool children and what their parents and those who parent young children can do to help their children. We, you can register now at help4adhd.org or on the CHAD website at chad.org slash asktheexpert. This has been a presentation of the National Resource Center on ADHD. We want to thank you again for being with us. Dr. Wetzel, we'd like to thank you for all of your time and your effort with us today. This now concludes our welcome. webcast. My pleasure. Thank you again.